fundamentally there is a fear. I think you'll see Iranian buying more and more homes and more and more property in Najaf, right? I mean, there's, very, there's a very clear penetration into the city itself. It's not a perfect power, but quite clearly it's infiltrated many different segments of Iraqi society. This is Thanasi Kambanis. Welcome to episode 16 of the TCF World Podcast. We're sitting in the Shuf Mountains in a olive grove surrounded by birds, so you're going to hear some nature accompaniment to our policy conversation today. I'm in Lebanon, joined by Dina Esfandiari and Renad Mansour, and today we're going to talk about Iran in Iraq. Thank you for joining me. Dina. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Renad. Hello. Let's start with a little table, uh, setting of the table, uh, if, if you will. Um, uh, so we have with us a, an Iraq expert and an Iran expert. Um, and uh, usually these, these kinds of folks end up always in separate rooms and separate, separate places, writing separately. Uh, so bring us into what the, what the, I don't want to use the word problem, what the... Uh, uh, the question is, when we when we talk about Iran in Iraq, then we can start turning to Dina and, and unpacking uh, some of the big uh, some of the big questions of mechanics and power and influence and nefariousness or mm. good intention mm. and so on. Sure, um, I think one of the biggest kind of uh, issues um, in Iraq since 2003 has been Iran's influence, Iran's role, particularly what some would call Iran's hegemony, I think, um, often overstated, but nonetheless very clear that Iran um, has benefited most from the U.S. decision to invade Iraq in 2003, and Iran has deeply penetrated different parts of the state and non-state institutions, um, and Iran remains very close to several political entities within Iraq, both Shia and Kurdish entities. Um, so there's been this kind of, um, from I suppose from the American perspective, uh, this kind of Iran emerging and winning out of what, you know, out of the ashes of, or flames of 2003. So what is, uh, Dina, what is Iran's interest in Iraq today? I think it's pretty simple. For Iran, Iraq is a neighboring country. It's a, it's a neighboring country that um, in, in the Islamic Republic's recent history invaded Iran and with whom Iran had an eight-year devastating war which has left a massive impact on the leadership of the Islamic Republic. And, uh, and you know, there's a 900-mile there's a border, very porous border, that separates the two countries. Uh, so all of these are, are significant issues for Iran. And so Tehran views Iraq as one of its top foreign policy priorities. In fact, I would argue its top foreign policy priority. Um, and so ensuring that Iraq is never too strong so as to pose a threat to it like it did under Saddam, um, and never too weak so that it would lead to the rise of groups like ISIS, uh, which would also pose a threat to it, is, uh, is, uh, is what Iran aims to achieve. So all their, uh, all their investments and alliances in, in Iraq, you'd say, are, are trying to calibrate, I think you, you've referred to this as ma managed instability. Managed instability. So they're, they're trying to calibrate the sweet spot where Iraq can't hurt them uh, by failing, as it did when ISIS uh, took over, and they can't hurt them by being too strong as it did when Saddam invaded them. So uh, 
they kind of got that wrong, didn't they, in, in, in 2014? Absolutely. It was a massive blow to Iran's policy in Iraq. And I think um, the Iranians, just like a lot of the, a lot of the Western policy community, um, were really taken off guard by, um, by ISIS's takeover of Iraq. Uh, and uh, the Iranians, they, they hadn't planned for it, they, had, they didn't foresee it. Um, and, uh, and so they were, again, like the West, a little bit slow on their feet in terms of reacting to ISIS's takeover. Um, but uh, what I think they did do better than, uh, than the policy community in the, in the Western world was that they um, took a couple days and then reacted a lot faster. Um, and finally kind of got the big machine rolling in order to do whatever it was that they could do to contain ISIS as best as possible, which they somewhat succeeded because it took ISIS a, a, a considerable amount of time to do what was one of their top priorities, which was to attack the, the Iranian system, which they only did, I think, two years after um, their takeover of Iraq. Okay, so what, one other question before we go back into the nitty-gritty of, of Iraq and how influenced their works. What, uh, what about the Islamic ideological project of Iran? The Iraq, Islamic Republic of Iran, for much of its short life, has, has been preoccupied with spreading the revolutionary message around the Islamic world, uh, trying to create other societies or other groups that follow the idea of Alayat al-Faqih and will be loyal to the supreme leader of Iran. So are you, like, is that not part of their, their game in this Shia majority country on their doorstep as well? I think the thing is, put simply, today, um, it no longer is it, the driving principle of, uh, of Iran's foreign policy in the region and also in Iraq. Um, it's undeniable that right after the revolution, I mean, this is very well documented, um, the, the spread of the Iranian revolution was definitely a top goal for Tehran. But I think over time, the Islamic Republic has learned a lot of lessons. It's become a lot more pragmatic. Um, and today, while, of course, um, the, the ideology of the revolution still remains um, in, the, in the back of uh, the Islamic Republic's head, and particularly in, in perhaps some of the more hardline elements of the regime uh, versus the moderates. Uh, it's definitely not the country's driving principle. Iran has interests in Iraq, economic interests, political interests, religious interests, uh, security interests, and, and it has to ensure that it can find a way to secure all of those. So ideology is, is not up there. Well, what are they doing, Renad? What kind of table is Iran running in, in Iraq these days? They have historic allies um, with some Iraqi leaders, um, some of the Shia Islamist groups, um, particularly, for example, the Fatah Alliance that just came second in the election, as well as Maliki's uh, State of Law Alliance, which came fourth or fifth. Um, so they, they have some powerful allies, the PUK, they have a Kurdish ally. So using these proxies, they want to remain influential in, in Iraq. I think it's important to note as well, um, it's true that 2014, as we've been discussing, was a mistake or a failure for Iran too. But Masoud Barzani, the Kurdish leader himself, admitted if it wasn't for Iran, I mean, Iran was the first to act. So across the board in Iraq, everyone realized that it was Iran who was there first, when the U.S. were still scrambling, when, when others were still scrambling. So they're not, obviously, as we've been discussing in the last few days, it's not a perfect power, but quite clearly it's infiltrated many different segments of Iraqi society, economically, socially, religious, and also politically. When and I, security. And security, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, when I think about historical analogies, uh, it seems actually 
that Iran's a very effective network of, of uh, let's say, proxies and levers and allies that it's amassed inside Iraq, it reminds me a lot of the way the United States and the UK managed affairs in uh, post-colonial but dependent states in the, in mm -hmm. the early Cold War. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not a relationship where this outside power can dictate everything that happens, but on the other hand, not a thing of importance occurs where, where Iran doesn't have a vote one way or another through a powerful corporation that controls, through a politician who can be ordered to act against his, his individual self-interest, yeah. through a militia, yeah. through pressure on coalition negotiations mm. and so on. Is, is that right? I mean, is, is Iran sort of the first among equals in its ability to influence every kind of thing that happens in Iraq today? I mean, I think it's still a work in progress for Iran. Um, I mean, you're seeing more and more in Iraq anti-Iranian sentiment, like you would have seen anti-colonial sentiment um, as well. So very clearly, um, Iran has to recalibrate or, or kind of rejudge how much influence it could overtly assert in Iraq. I think something like supporting Nuri al-Maliki at the top so overtly um, was a problem and they learned from it. But very clearly, you know, as, as I say, they have different ways to try and maintain their influence. Some of them are on the table, some of them are under the table. And but there, you know, there will be increasingly this this assumption that Iraqi Shia support Iranian Shia because of the Shia uh, link is becoming uh, proven false. And even the Saudi Crown Prince has realized this and has started working with Iraqi Shia against the Iranian policy. So there is that kind of anti-Iranianism growing. And I think that the election, the victory, the small victory nonetheless, but the victory of Muqtada al-Sadr's uh, coalition, one of their main policies was anti-Iran. Well, so what are some setbacks for Iran in Iraq or some divergences between uh, Iraqi Shia and Iranians uh, that, that we can that we can observe in recent years? Um, there, there are a number of them. I mean, obviously, the the two parties are incredibly close, and and uh, and as Iran had said, this is a challenge for Iran how to manage these differences. But it's something that Iran has invested a lot of time and effort into it, um, both you know religious, political, and and every sector that it's involved in. And it's kind of a long-standing effort. It's something that are, the Islamic Republic has been doing since the beginning. So while it's not perfect, it really does learn as it goes along. Um, and tends to improve as it goes along, but of course it doesn't get everything right. Um, so in terms of the differences, there, there's a number of differences. I mean, there are, there are religious differences. Um, uh, Iraqi Shia really do follow um, their own religious center, Najaf, and they're not as close to Qom as everybody paints them out to be. Um, there are political differences. There are differences in terms of um, even, even within families in Iraq. Uh, even when there have been intermarriages between Iraqis and Iranians, their beliefs are not necessarily aligned. And then, of course, at the end of the day, the Iraqi Shia are Iraqi. They have the interests of Iraq um, in mind, while in some cases they may respond to Tehran because Tehran funds them or Tehran gives them political support. At the end of the day, what they want to ensure is that their life in Iraq is improved and that you know the Iraqi nation um, uh, remains uh, a country together, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, the differences are very much there. Um, Iran is aware of them, and there's also a, a significant internal debate within the Iranian system about what it is that they can and can't do, and how they can address some of the the sectarianism that's been going on in Iraq, that's been problematic in terms of the the backlash it's had in terms of uh, support for Iran. 
So there is this debate going on. They're trying to manage it. Um, and in some cases, they get it right, and, and often they don't. I mean, it seems that there's one zero-sum element here, which is if Iraq is autonomous, that is a threat to Iran. Even if their interests are, are allied today, uh, a fully autonomous, politically autonomous Iraq that makes its own foreign relations, that might do business with Saudi Arabia, might have security relationships with the United States, might trade with Turkey, and so on, without relying on Iran, that's a problem. Because even if, if, if they're free to make their own choices and set their own policy, even if they agree today, they might disagree tomorrow, and then where is Tehran? But Iran doesn't view it that way. So Iran uh, sees it as a problem should that happen. But in Tehran's mind, that will never happen because Iran will never allow it to happen. Iran's efforts and Iraq's, like we said, the links that it's cultivated in every sector, the efforts it's put into building its influence and relationship, for, for Tehran, it, it just doesn't believe that there will be a time, at least in the near future, where Iraq can be fully independent um, and not have some kind of Iranian influence that's that over so, it. So the idea is that uh, if Iraq is starting to make a policy choice that really is unacceptable to Iran, they can simply stop that policy choice in its tracks using their proxies, using their loyal politicians, uh, using the pressure points they have. So there just won't be a, a, a tilt to Saudi Arabia, let's say, or a, a turnover of the security forces to the Americans uh, as, as, as there was earlier in the post-invasion period. Absolutely. Tehran today believes that, yes, if there is an issue where the Iraqis don't necessarily align with Iran, and, and there have been many and there are likely to be many, um, that it can use someone within its massive network in Iraq in order to sway that decision and ensure that it doesn't come out fully against Iranian interests. Now, that's not to say that Iraq can't do things like, for example, uh, hold discussions with Saudi Arabia and increase ties with Saudi Arabia, which it has been doing recently. Um, but Iran also recognizes that these are the prerogative of, of states. I mean, you know, Iraq is not Iran, it's Iraq. And so at the end of the day, Iran has influence over it. It will try to sway its decisions. It will also ensure that, like I said, it doesn't get strong enough for two weeks that it poses a problem. But, um, but it has to have a certain amount of independence at the end of the day. Order from Ashes. New Foundations for Security in the Middle East is a multi-year TCF project supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. TCF experts are studying new ways to manage conflict and promote stability. You can order the book and read the reports on our website. Go to tcf.org and look for the Arab Regional Security page. We're back from the break. This is Thanasi Kambanis in Lebanon. I'm talking with Dinas Fandiari and uh, Renad Mansour. We're talking about Iran in Iraq. Uh, now, Renad, uh, let's talk about the, the, the recent dramatic history including the uh, sort of flurry of events that took place when Kurdish, let's say, separatist Kurds voted to secede from Iraq. And then, uh, uh, well, tell us, tell us what happened in Kirkuk and what was, uh, why that was important and what was the role of Iran. Well, I mean, to begin, you know, it should be noted that when the, the Islamic State was taking over large parts of Iraq, Mosul, elsewhere, the Kurds found that an opportunity to take Kirkuk in August of 2014. Masoud Barzani said Kirkuk is now 
Kurdistan, and we will defend it as a Peshmerga. This is this uh, disputed oil-producing city with Kurds and Arabs living in contested uh, strategic Former place. Kurdish leader called it, Jalal Talibani called it the Jerusalem of the Kurds. So you could, it, it's that, as that kind of dispute. So what happened is the Kurds decided um, last year to hold a referendum uh, for independence. Uh, strongly objection, strong objections from all sides. Um, except for Israel, but every other country really was strongly opposed to it, including Iran, the strongest actor, as we've been saying, in, in Iraq. Um, Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Quds force, paid Masoud Barzani, the Kurdish leader, and told them not to do it. They did it. So, you know, what happened afterwards was to, to some extent a punishment, but also kind of to roll back this Kurdish ambitions. Um, the Prime Minister of Iraq, Haider al-Abadi, working with Iran and the popular mobilization units, the Shia paramilitary groups, that some of them which are close to Iran, um, decided to kind of move into Kirkuk. But there wasn't a fight because Iran also has good relations with Kurdish groups, particularly the PUK. So people from the Talibani network who have historic links, business links, political links with Iran, negotiated a deal before any fight happened to withdraw the Peshmerga. So basically the Hashid and, and the Iraqi forces moved into Kirkuk uh, to take it back. This episode, uh, which I think Iran has enjoyed the, the publicity repercussions of, uh, makes Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force of the Revolutionary Guard, looked like a brilliant genius, the man who was able to reconquer this incredibly tense, disputed city with barely shedding a drop of blood, you know, using, using shrewd diplomacy, alliances, uh, 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 friendships that go back decades. Now, I'm wary of any kind of Superman uh, uh, interpretation of Iran or, frankly, anyone on, on the ground in the Middle East. But mm. this guy, the sort of was, portly, portly bearded Iranian guy in middle age with his baseball cap, has been showing up in Twitter pictures from all over the region as the guy who's making everything everything happen. Mm. So what uh, what gives? I mean, is is he is he the I evil mean, genius who's who's figured out how to sew the whole the whole place up? I mean, anytime you have a, a problem in Iraq, he's scrambling um, to to get to fix it. Um, so it's not like it's all this master plan because clearly he didn't want the referendum to happen. Clearly he didn't want 2014 ISIS to take over Iraq. Clearly he didn't want what happened in last last week's or a few weeks ago's elections to happen. So he's often having to scramble and get in there. So, But what's happened is he has built these different channels of power with different actors, state and non-state, and he'll have to use them every now and then when he is on the back, when he's on his back foot, right? That's what's happening. So he, when, when, when the Kurds did the referendum, this was a huge problem for, for him, so they decided that there, there needed to be a way to assert his, his allies. Is this personalized power? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think certainly he is the face of Iranian presence in the region today uh, by design. Um, but uh, and, and certainly he also has a lot of personal relationships that he spent a significant amount of time cultivating, um, which gives him... And as a result, the Iranian state uh, access in, in a way that's unprecedented in a, in a range of arenas in the region. It's not just in Iraq, but also in Syria, for example. Um, having said that, uh, Iranian efforts in the region, yes, he is the face of them, um, but he's not alone. There's the entire state system behind the uh, IRGC and the Quds Force, as you mentioned, in the region. Qasem Soleimani can't be present everywhere at once. So Iran has a large network of, of, uh, 
uh, proxies that it relies on. Um, it also has a large network of religious figures that it sends to the region that it relies on. Um, and then, of course, there are a range of economic actors it also relies on as well. It's just that it's, it's useful to have someone like Qasem Soleimani to show to the rest of the world that, yes, Iran has this one man who's capable of doing anything. And in that respect, um, Iran's PR campaign has done pretty well. Well, that raises a question that, that's interesting to me. The choice that Iran seemed to make recently, a few years ago only, to, in a sense, come on stage and come out, out of the closet with, with its influence in Iraq and elsewhere, I mean, in Syria especially. So Qasem Soleimani, uh, we suddenly started seeing his photographs everywhere. And, uh, and in general, in the campaign against ISIS, Iran was very open about the role it was playing. Was it a decision, and, and why? And if so, why did they decide to make this part of their, their strategic communications uh, uh, approach? I think the uh, government in Iran just woke up to the idea of, uh, of uh, PR and campaigning and the effects that that could have in terms of uh, increasing its, its influence, its visibility uh, in the region. Uh, initially, Iran, uh, as you mentioned, was, was very keen to keep its efforts uh, in the region under, kept under wraps. It really didn't want anyone to know how involved it was in Syria, for example, what kind of involvement was there, uh, because it knew that once that became public, then uh, you would also have the bad news that trickled back to Tehran, like the body bags that were coming back, et cetera, et cetera. And so the, Tehran wanted to avoid that. But it realized that it was losing the publicity and PR war. Uh, and it also realized with the rise of ISIS that it was going to have to inject a certain amount of credibility and legitimacy into the activities of the IRGC and the Quds Force abroad within its own domestic population. Uh, because increasingly the Iranian population was um, against uh, Iranian efforts in the region, uh, perceiving it as a diversion of a lot of Iranian uh, resources away from Iran, which needed it badly at the time under sanctions and to this day, uh, even in a post-sanctions or not so clearly post-sanctions phase. And, and, so, uh, and so Iran woke up to the idea of, of creating a figure or at least publicly putting out a figure out there who would be able to unite uh, the Iranian nation behind him. And, and with ISIS and the publicity around um, Qasem Soleimani, that, that began to work. Renaud, how much of the relationship, or the presence, rather, of, of, of Iran and Iraq is viewed as coercive by Iraqis? I mean, it's a foreign power that is trying to control, uh, at times, the political system and the economic, social, religious institutions. Beginning in 2003 onward, most of this movement, these, these sort of protesters, let's see, even Shias, were anti-American, right? Even Muqtada was the, 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 the champion of anti-Americanism because they were the most dominant power. It was a very clear U.S. occupation. But over the years, as the U.S. kind of influence has withdrawn, it's become, Iran has sort of filled in those gaps, and now it's, so their attention is turned towards anti-Iranian, and, and it's there. You know, so I mean, but it's, it's a balance, right? Because at the same time, they know that um, Iran has been supportive, uh, especially in the fight against ISIS, for example. But they don't think that Iran has the best interest of Iraq on its top of its dossier. Now, of course, Iran has powerful actors, as I say, who want to benefit from, from Iran's presence, and so it does have allies. But en masse, if you speak to most Iraqis, you won't get this, you know, we love Iran all the time. 
has Iran's presence been economically beneficial to Iraqis? Like in anything, there was even an article that's saying that now you're seeing Iranian dates in Iraq, right? And and that was like a huge and, deal. And Iraq is it, famous for, for having dates, the best dates in the world. From Basra, right? So, so the fact that you know you're getting stories, the fact that Iraqis are talking about this, right? Why are we? Why you know? Why do we have Iranian products? Why do we have this? Iran is building roads. Iran is building uh, routes towards Syria through Iraq. I mean, Iran views Iraq as an economic uh, market. What about the religious dynamics? I mean, the, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the, there was a report a few years ago uh, of uh, a senior Iranian cleric sort of campaigning before the death of, of Sistani, the most revered cleric in, in, in Iraq. You know, the man's still alive. He's an incredibly influential mm -hmm. figure. And there was this visit yeah. that was, I think, perceived by some yeah. as a campaign to be his replacement yeah. by this Iranian. Yeah. Uh, is there an anxiety or, or even just a, an irritation among the religious uh, elite and establishment in Iraq uh, uh, and a fear of an Iranian intervention there? There's both. There's both irritation and kind of um, a fear. Uh, what, what you see, and, and keep in mind, this same cleric who you're mentioning, Shahrudi, came back. Uh, last year, and Sistani didn't, didn't meet with him this time. So, I mean, that act alone shows you the, the, the irritation, but there's also a fear, because Najaf and, and the Marja'iya, the, the clerics in Najaf, fundamentally disagree with the Khomeini concept of Vilayat al-Faqih. They don't believe that clerics should rule. They come from more of the quietest school, which is clerics should stay away from politics. Now, obviously, over the past Najaf and right, Sistani. I mean, their version has, of staying away seems yeah. awfully involved. Well, from a I mean, their, their, secular their argument. Well, I mean, no, it makes sense, but their argument is, and this is not, no, we're not talking about Muqtada here, it's, we're talking about Najaf. I mean, in 2014, if the country is falling apart, you know, you need to move, get involved. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and obviously, Sistani has been political, but fundamentally, there is a fear. I think you'll see Iranian buying more and more homes and more and more property in Najaf. Right. I mean, there's very, there's a very clear penetration into the city itself and into the institutions. Well, and Karbala feels very Iranian. Yeah, and and and, so and you know, you have you know thousands and thousands of Iranian religious tourists coming to Najaf. It's a very important sort of holy site for the Shia, particularly. So, in any case, there is this fear. Um, and so, what happens after Sistani? Most people will say the institution of Najaf is strong itself to to resist this Iranian pressure, but there is definitely an attempt by Iran to become closer to these religious institutions. I actually think that this case is a really good example of Iran misjudging a situation and overreaching. The Iranians thought that, you know, bringing their cleric and putting him there was going to be something that was going to be relatively easy. Um, and that he wasn't going to face that much opposition. After all, Shahrudi is pretty well respected, both in Iran and Iraq. And, and he's and Iraqi. I, and he's Iraqi, exactly. So he, so if the Iranians Unlike thought, Sistani, by the way, who's an, an Iraqi nationalist who himself is Iranian. Yeah. Have an Iranian nationalist who's an Iraqi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, the Iranians thought that this wouldn't be that complicated. And, and, and I think they learned as they went along. So it's still a desire that they have to ensure that whoever's in place next um, will be somebody that will respond easily to, to Iran. But, um, but in this particular case, they saw it wasn't going to be as easy as they thought. Well, this is a really interesting conversation. Thank you, uh, Dina Esfandiari and uh, Renad Mansour for joining me. Uh, and uh, this is Danasi Kambanis. Thanks for listening. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit 
ccf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.